Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Good afternoon and welcome to The Hoon from the team at the Kaka with Bernard Hickey, the the host, uh, hostess with the mostest, and Peter Bale, his co-host, that's me, but I'm going to be leading it today because Bernard is at the Carbon Lounge at the airport about to board a flight to uh, go and talk to some hoteliers in Queenstown who desperately need to hear his spiel on the politics. But the great thing is we're going to get the Bernard spiel first. We're then going to talk to Catherine Dyer, our climate expert from the Kaka, and then we're going to bring in Professor Robert Patman, our usual and wonderful guest from uh, Otago University, and Josie Pagani, uh, the Post columnist from Wellington. And we're going to really go through both international affairs and then come back into New Zealand politics towards the top of the hour, particularly given the shift that's happened today with the resolution of what the um, the special votes um, have yielded and what that might mean for the coalition negotiations and what kind of government we get. But, you know, welcome and thank you, everybody. Bernard, how are you over there? Fantastic. It's great to see you in the um, the big the big seat with the fly-by-wire um, joystick. Um, I'm here in the lounge um, mm-hmm. uh, with the smell of carbon on my breath, um, uh, about to fly to uh, Queenstown, and that will be pretty much the last big trip I will do um, internally, and and I will camp uh, where we are and try and avoid <laughs> burning mm. burning more mm. uh, fossil fuels um, on flights. It's one of these hangovers from a while back. But it's great to great to be here and be, and to say thank you for all of our our loyal people for coming back after uh, we were away last week. Yes, well, it was great. To, we got fabulous feedback, and I just want to give some feedback too. I mean, people really did miss it. I had several people, and I'd also like to make a little call out to the very nice chap I sat next to at a at a Twitter journalism event this week who said, I said, because I actually did recognise him from somewhere, and he said, you don't know me, but I know you from the Hoon. And we got some great feedback, and I do appreciate it, because, of course, we do this for fun, pretty much. I mean, it's a it's an adjunct to the Kaka, of course, but we are here for, for our own entertainment to some extent. Yes, with um, plenty of news, this uh, today at least, with the yeah. election results finalised at uh, just after two o'clock. And Bernard, what is your, I mean, not a hot take or a reckon, what's your considered view about what we saw today with National going down two seats, presumably they'll get Waikato. What does it mean for the for Luxon or for the shape of the government? Well, it means that the very, very slim majority they had on election night is now gone. They only have 59 seats between them, National and Act, in a 123-seat parliament. That means that they need Winston. Uh, so Winston is more in demand by National now than he was mm. on election night. Now, he, he's not as, as in demand as he was in 2017, and that back then he was negotiating with both parties. Yeah, he made that point, I thought, was quite interesting, really, that it, it would not only take less time, but presumably it also makes him less difficult, fractionally. Yes. Uh, he isn't in a position to hold up two cards, one with yes and one with no, and have two different coloured mobile phones to brand yes on everyone's mm. faces. But he still has some power because without those uh, eight uh, seats that he has retained, National Act cannot go to the Governor-General and say we can exercise a majority in Parliament. So Mm. there will be a price for supplying confidence. Um, You will talk um, later on with Josie and and Robert, particularly around the foreign affairs issue. Um, One of the interesting timing aspects to all of this is that uh, the APEC meeting is in nine mm. or ten days' time, and it seems that from the comments Christopher Luxon is making that he'd quite like to go as mm. the Prime Minister, but if he well, doesn't... he certainly then, should, yeah. Mm. And if he doesn't, then you'd expect someone like a new Foreign Minister to go as well. But you might, I mean, presumably in the interim, it would be Chris, Chris Hipkins who goes, yes, or Nanaya Mahuta or both. Yeah, I mean, there have, have been a few stand-ins. Uh, Grant Robertson obviously went to the World Cup final as the sports minister, but I think that's about it. Um, we're now well past the final results. It's very clear uh, Luxon is going to be the PM. Mm-hmm. So they'll be pulling out the stops to get people sworn in, to get their ministerial warrants, and, and so he can go to 
APEC because, you know, it's been two or three weeks without a clear uh, uh, leader and there will be quite a bit happening in APEC. No doubt you're talking yes. about that with well, Robert. Well, it's critical, yeah. Mm. So, um, and, you know, uh, Christopher Luxon's champing at the bit to get in there and get cracking, as he said. And that there's things that they need and want to do. They've got a 100-day plan to um, enact, although it's not going to be as easy as they'd first hoped in large part because um, they're going to have to rely on lots of other people to get things done. The best example of that is just this week, uh, the Auckland Council has rejected plans for greenfields development Mm -hmm. around Auckland. So out in Henderson, up north past Albany, there was a whole bunch of developers ready to go with the greenfields. National has said they prefer greenfields to brownfields because then they don't have lots of NIMBYs screaming at them. And um, the Auckland Council said, nope, we're not going to do greenfields either because that means lots of infrastructure spending for us and also a bunch of this greenfields is also is also in floodplains. Yeah. So we don't want to pay for the, the next um, flood um, disaster. Well, especially not this la- after this last couple of weeks yeah. where you've had these really very large you know, responsibilities and settlements, which, which as I think um, Grant Robertson was talking about some weeks ago, is not going to be a sustainable way to do this ongoing climate problem. $18.5 billion of losses from these yeah. two storms. And this, it was supposed to be a one in 200-year storm. Uh, clearly, they're going to have them more regularly than that. And we'll talk about that in a bit more depth with Catherine in a minute. Mm. But um, these climate events, they are massive. I attended a speech this morning from Adrian Orr about climate to yes. um, a bunch of about a thousand. Which apparently he got in a, he got in a bit of trouble with David with David Seymour for even addressing the climate as a as a valid issue, which seems ridiculous given that you know the insurance and economic implications are gigantic. Exactly, and uh, Adrian Orr made good points in his speech to say um, that. The climate is not only a financial stability issue for the long run, but also in the short run, and a macroeconomic issue. Because mm. as we've seen in the last uh, couple of years, all these disasters is pushing up insurance costs Absolutely. at the very least, and that is part of the inflation story. Yeah, uh, all the supply shocks we've had—that's what causes inflation. So, uh, I think the word "ridiculous" is pretty accurate for yeah. the claim that. Um, climate change is not something that uh, a Reserve Bank should think about. Also, he seems to forget that our Reserve Bank does prudential policy and uh, manages financial stability for the economy as well, unlike central banks overseas, who are mostly only about monetary policy. Yeah, no, it's got. To, it's actually got to, I mean, uh, funnily enough, we talked just ahead of the election, I think, about, about some of the, the news coverage of the central bank and of the, whether we were having a soft landing from you know from high inflation and so on. And yet this week, I finally heard, heard somebody on the radio saying that, in fact, Adrian Orr did appear to you know, more or less delivered exactly that soft landing. I think we should be quite grateful in a way that the, the Reserve Bank Act allows that breadth of vision, you know, within within setting monetary policy, including you know whether it's because I think the national is it national act want to get rid of the employment aspect of the of the Reserve Bank's mandate. Yeah, the um, uh, mandate which is for the Reserve Bank to support um, the maximum sustainable employment, which actually. Is one of those weasel words to say we'll do what we think is necessary, but inflation is still number one yep. for us. And I actually think removing that mandate won't change too much in the economy. However, no, uh, but what, it's important. It was particularly important under a Labour government, I think, to have it there, right? Yeah, yeah. As and, a symbol, you know, it's not um, radical. This is something the U.S. Federal Reserve, <laughs> the Reserve Bank of Australia, uh, have as well. Yeah. Um, and it it does send a few bad signals, but uh, I don't think it matters that much in the long run. What will matter, though, is that uh, we've just we've just had a housing boom. Uh, the day after the election, prices rose 20%, in my estimate. I see Tony Alexander has said this week that there'll be another 10% rise this year and 15% rise next year. The Reserve Bank will, no doubt, have to worry about whether a housing boom is going to start inflation mm. again. And we could have the awkward prospect of Adrian Orr putting up interest rates at the end of February in one of his first acts under his new boss, um, Finance Minister Nicola Willis. And and we learned this week from the Financial Stability Report that the Reserve Bank is looking to introduce debt-to-income multiple controls in the middle of next year. How interesting. 
Yeah, well, that'll be quite tricky for foreign buyers or just for New Zealand buyers. Everyone, and <laughs> of course, this is, this is really uh, in National's face. What the Reserve Bank would be doing would be limiting the ability of people to leverage up their equity, um, mm -hmm. the untaxed and leveraged equity they have into more uh, rental properties or owner-occupied uh, properties. Yeah. And um, this will be a flashpoint between the new government and Adrian Orr. And there's a bunch of people behind the scenes who don't want to talk about it publicly, but are saying that there is a good chance that this clash between uh, Willis, Christopher Bishop and mm. David Seymour, who have been remarkably public and aggressive in calling for his removal. Yes, in the past, yes. Will, um, will cause an unprecedented split uh, between our independent reserve bank and uh, the government, something that we've managed to avoid for 30 years. Yeah, yeah, no, I think they're very unwise. You know, we've seen this with the Bank of England as well, with the, with, you know, where the government will occasionally play, play politics there. But it's actually been, you know, this this principle of a, an independent central bank, very much reinforced, I think, by Gordon Brown when he, when he, Came in under Blair as the as the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Bernard. Just just going back one minute before we bring Catherine in, the the Kaka Environment correspondent or climate correspondent. I guess it's everything correspondent on the overhang. We've you know, partly because Te Party Māori has done so well. We now have a slightly expanded Parliament. Is that right? Because of the way MMP works. Do you want to just just. It, see where that goes before we bring Catherine in? So the normal state of affairs is we have 120 MPs in Parliament. But if you manage to win electorate seats on your own right more than the, your percentage share in Parliament, and in this case, uh, Te Pāti Māori has won six electorate seats, but only has 3% of the vote. And in effect, they've got two more than they would have if it was mm, only about mm. their share of the vote. So that adds two to the uh, the number of seats in Parliament. And because of this, the weird accidental piece of constitutional history in which uh, one of the candidates uh, died during the election campaign, Port Waikato will be added on. Yeah. So we go from 120 to 123. And that makes it a little bit more difficult for a national act to govern and own. And it's one of the reasons yeah. that Winston Peters becomes uh, more relevant again in our gerontocracy. Yeah, it's so interesting. And, and those Labour people, the, la the Labour people who moved to, to Party Māori are now looking rather smart, it would seem. Well, this is the interesting thing. Um, the one uh, electorate that Te Party Māori didn't win was the one where the incumbent Labour MP switched sides to Te Party Māori and was effectively kicked out by the electorate who were against her as a Labour MP. So even though uh, Labour won that seat, you could argue that Te Pāti Māori uh, won all of the mm. uh, seats in uh, the Māori seats in Parliament, um, rejecting all of the Labour candidates. It's just ha it happened that one of the Labour candidates was at this point a Te Pāti Māori candidate. So it really was a rejection by Tao Māori of um, Labour, a yeah. complete rejection as electorate MPs, although uh, no one was silly enough to not take advantage of the a strategic ability to split their votes and to vote for Labour as their party vote and to Party Māori as the electorate right. vote. So that's um, that's uh, that's going to put some some interesting pressure on Parliament. And actually, it means that you know you've got um, Labour with 34 seats, the Greens with 15, and Te Party Māori with six. The opposition is going to be pretty heavy on Green mm. and Te Pāti Māori, mm. and uh, Labour will have to fight to retain their relevance in uh, an environment like that. Which, will be, which is kind of which is a kind of a good position to be in, given how exhausted they've been for the past for the past eighteen months or so. You know? Well, they're now going to have an ugly debate, mm. just as they had an ugly debate after losing in two thousand and eight. Which is, what are they going to do about the capital gains tax and the wealth tax? Yeah. Um, the, Christopher Hipkins has nailed his feet to that mast, and um, either he has to go or he has to change his mind. Uh, and you know, Labor yeah, very difficult to change his mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Labor um, will have to make a call. Either they're going to stick with being the party of landlords along with national, just not quite as aggressive. Yep. Well, I think we know. I think we, you know, we, you know, we talked about it. That 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 was actually a, a really dangerous reversal. Um, shall we bring Catherine in now? Because you, yes, you've please, got, yeah. you're going to drop out um, and and get your plane at some point, and you've got some. You, you, why don't you launch into the conversation with Catherine about these reports? So, Catherine, you're the the Kaka climate guru. Yes. Um. Thank Thank you very much, Catherine, for jumping on. I have this housing theory of everything. 
which is very rapidly morphing into a housing and climate theory of everything. Um, Catherine, the key, one of the key things I reported on this week was uh, some advice from Treasury to the government, which essentially said that uh, on our current trajectory, we're going to miss our Paris Agreement targets. And that means we're going to have to stump up with $26 billion, up to $26 billion to buy emissions credits overseas. And that is going to um, be a problem for whoever's in government at the time. Either they have to choose to renege on the Paris Climate Agreement, and I think quietly yeah. they may want to uh, hope that everyone else fails that's as right. well. No, I think that's I think that's that's happening in many democracies around the world, that, that, pe- yeah. that people are wanting bigger places to admit that they failed or everybody to admit the failure, which I guess is what we're going to see in Dubai at the COP in December. Yeah, no, it's going to be a, bi- a big moment. Uh, and also, people are looking to write the Paris agreements into the black letter law of their trade agreements. So we have this free trade agreement with Europe, which says if we breach the, f- the Paris agreement uh, rules, we will be turfed out of the agreement. Interestingly, just in the last week, uh, we've seen from uh, Australia, Australia decided to stop negotiating with Europe for a free trade agreement, in part because the Europeans wanted to write in a hard uh, target for um, the Paris Agreement. So the uh, Australians have managed to avoid getting uh, snookered there. But it's going to be a problem for National. Remember, if National chooses to renege on the Paris Agreement, uh, which, by the way, uh, Act says it should, uh, although National have said they won't, um, if they renege on the Paris Agreement, that throws their own farmers under the bus. And so that's that's going to be a, an issue there. I just wanted to ask ask you before I head off about the a big paper that's come out um, this week from James Hansen, uh, the you could argue one of the most famous climate scientists in the world. Um, uh, could you tell us, for the layman of like me, <laughs> what this means? So he's come out, this paper has been floating around for the last year or so while it went through peer review before it actually got published. So it's just been published this week. And he's saying that climate sensitivity has been underestimated, that what the IPCC says is about for a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere, you would get about three three degrees of warming. He's saying that's more like 4.8% in the near term and more like 10% when you go really far out for the for the current amount of um, greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. So there's that, and a lot of that is to do with the effect of aerosols, so pollutants in the in the atmosphere. He thinks that they're masking some of the actual heating that's already been happening. So he also thinks that the heating, the amount of he- heating we see each year is about to increase year on year. So yeah, there's, there's quite a bit in this paper. It's 62 odd pages long. It, it goes back and looks at the paleo record. There's lots of technical data in it. But I think what's interesting is Michael Mann, who's the other towering figure in climate mm. science, has come out saying, I completely disagree with James Hansen on this. So this is like, you know, the thriller in Manila or the, the rumble in the jungle kind of a thing. It's like the two biggest figures in climate science um, completely disagreeing with each other. Uh, and, you know, who knows where that's going to come out. It's time to get out the popcorn and the jousting sticks and see what happens. I'd pay for a ticket to watch that. That would be fun. But the headline of, of what Hansen is saying is that we're going to be at one and a half degrees above uh, pre-industrial levels by uh, 2030. I mean, we're pretty much already there this year. It looks like it's 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 going to be exceed just this year alone one and a half degrees. Mm. These forecast, like as as Simon, our producer, was pointing out, no, seven years. We're talking about seven yeah, years no, rather than you know 47 years or 37. Yeah, yeah. No, no, there's no putting it off to the to the grandkids. Yeah. Um, it's, it's here right now. And that, that's when he starts to say we should be a building lots of nuclear and B, looking at solar radiation management, mm. which are some pretty big calls. And um, yeah, that's that's the stuff where it starts to get a little bit scary. Because When you say solar radiation management, Catherine, you're talking about geoengineering. Yes, geoengineering, mm. spraying um, aerosols into the stratosphere to block sunlight from mm-hmm. coming through to the mm-hmm. earth. What could so- possibly go wrong? Yeah. Exactly. You kind of, both of those things, you kind of look at them and go, they, they, those may potentially be plausible if you've got an entirely politically stable world mm. for forever from now on to continue managing them. But if that's not going to be the case, then those things become little time bombs that can go off, you know? Yeah, and you've got some very interesting geopolitical, I mean, exactly that, but also you've got India, for example, doing very heavy investigations into into um, um, 
cloud seeding and and geo, you know, they're very interested in the whole geoengineering aspect because they want, you know, the next 30 years of development to be about India in the way that the last 30 years of development were about China. And one of the things about geoengineering is that it essentially turns the problem solving um, uh, process into a unilateral mm. one. Whereas at the moment, the problem solving process is a combined thing. We all have to agree to do it to make it work. Whereas with geoengineering, you know, the Russians yeah. or the Chinese or the or the Indians who now can put things up there, and of course um, the Americans could decide well, we're going to solve this problem by experimenting with the planet's atmosphere, mm. which you know it's not it's not great. I think what I'm going to find really interesting is at this next global meeting of the UNFCCC, what kind of stories they come out with, or what kind of kind of myth building mm. they do to keep us all on board that. Things are still under control, you know. Do, do you mean Dubai, or do you mean do? Yeah, yeah. Like if we're, well, Dubai or the next one after that. Mm. But by twenty thirty, if if we've got a bunch of countries like New Zealand, Australia, UK who aren't going to meet their twenty thirty targets, and so start to renege on them, which is I th- think quite likely. And you've got these other things, other people saying, well, the the cl- climate sensitivity is much higher than we thought, and things are going to happen much more quickly. What stories do you start to pull together mm. to convince people that actually we've got this. You know, like, I, I think that's going to be yeah. Yeah. fascinating. I, I'm going to have to um, to jump off now. Thank you very much. Certainly. Bernard, it's been lovely. Just love to have you at the Carbon Lounge. Catherine, the, thank, the you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. for. And we've got thank um, you. the lovely Professor Robert Patman joining us from Otago University to discuss international affairs and what could be. We, we, we were just discussing climate and, of course, the the warnings yet again this week from some of the great climate scientists that we're nowhere near the 1.5 limit. Um, And of course, Bernard put that in a very good political context, which it means it makes much more likely that we may well renege on our own New Zealand commitments to 2030. Yes. And of course, makes the wider commitment to 2050 even more problematic. Yeah. So how are you getting on, Robert? You've been you've been writing like a mad thing publicly. I'm sure you've been working like a mad thing as well, particularly on... Just juggling, actually, because uh, there's a lot of public interest in what's going mm. on, obviously, in the Middle East. Uh, but also, it's a very busy time of year, as you can appreciate, Peter. I'm, I'm swimming in exam scripts in the office at the moment. And... Well, but you're also working on my honorary doctorate, as, a, you know, as, we, as, we've, as, as we've discussed. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I nearly forgot, yeah. As if I could forget. Yeah, I just got my um, Coast Guard Day Skipper certificate yesterday, so I'm very much hoping it's going to be something quite similar, that you'll just post it to me after and say, you know, having done all these podcasts with you and um, and read your thing on spinoff, here's your, here's your doctorate. Now, you've been writing a couple of quite interesting pieces, I think, Robert, one today for the ODT, the Otago Daily Times, and, an, and another, I think, d- double byline earlier in the week with um, the conversation. Professor Al Gillespie, yeah. yeah. About the New Zealand diplomatic aspect and influ- potential mm. influence for New Zealand on the Israel-Hamas thing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's a really super relevant one to what you do, and then we can talk about what's actually going on this week. Yes, sure. Uh, th- there was a bit of a disconnect going on between many people in this country being deeply concerned about the situation in the Middle East and the, the relative silence that was coming from mm. our politicians. And, of course, we've been in this political interregnum and um, it, it is a pity that we have not made our voice clearer, but we have a, a new government in sight, I suppose, now uh, with the special vote in. And so we may get greater clarity, but I think both Al and myself feel that uh, New Zealand does can present itself as the voice of reason mm-hmm. to some degree. And this is a very dangerous situation uh, that we are seeing unfold. It's a catastrophic situation, actually. And uh, it's important that smaller countries do not sit on the sidelines. And I was pleased to see that New Zealand, actually, although it was the only member of the Five Eyes to do so, voted for the Jordanian-sponsored resolution, which was calling for an immediate humanitarian truce, leading to a permanent cessation of hostilities. And Chris Luxon confirmed in the last 24 hours that he stands by that vote, and he was consulted about it and feels it's the right thing to do. Uh, we joined company with uh, likes of Ireland, but many countries either abstained, uh, when I say many, many countries that we consider our traditional allies either abstained or mm. opposed it. 
And let's just explain why they opposed it or, or abstained, partly because it, it didn't explicitly um, talk about the you know the, the October seven trigger of the of the conflict, right? Yes, uh, and all, it didn't also pay enough attention to Israel's right of self defense, and also didn't say enough about what triggered. But you see, there is some contestation mm-hmm. around what triggered it because clearly, while in no way condoning the appalling violence by Hamas, which actually has been terrible news for Mm. most ordinary Palestinians, uh, has made their lives hell, basically. Um, And it must be very galling for many Palestinians to know that much of the leadership, or at least some of the prominent leaders of the Hamas leadership Mm -hmm. are in the Gulf states. Quite quite happily watching it from from Qatar, yeah. I think it's important that New Zealand uh, does, it's traditionally had good relations with the Palestinians and the Israelis, has no mm. extra grind. And I think it's important uh, that New Zealand's role, I think, not necessarily on its own, but with countries like Ireland and other um, countries in Scandinavia, keep the discussion going that military force will not solve mm. a political problem, which has been going on for seven decades. Draw attention to the terrible uh, human costs of this uh, bombardment that's going on in the Gaza Strip. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, remind the actors that they must consider what comes next. Even if Israel succeeds in uh, eliminating or eradicating Hamas, that's not going to solve the problem. And and, and so it's important that we do have small and middle powers saying, actually, guys, we do need to not just address the symptoms of this seven-decade conflict, but we need to address its deep-seated Causes absolutely, and and this is a, well, well. I'll come back to that in a minute, but I just want to ask you: when when you're when you have this kind of interregnum between governments, what what do you understand was the process of the New Zealand permanent representative to the UN deciding that? I mean, interesting that you said that that Luxon was consulted. Would that still go through Nanaya Mahuta as as provisional? I would assume, assume so. Let's be quite clear: the diplomats at the UN will be taking mm. political instructions. Sometimes there's a bit of confusion, and actually politicians inadvertently fuel this confusion. They say, oh, I can't comment on that because I haven't been briefed by my officials, which almost suggests the officials make policy. They don't. They implement policy. It's the politicians that formulate it. So we must infer, I think, Peter, that Chris Hipkins and Luxon's, uh, that these two leaders were in touch and their respective advisors and formulated Mm. a common position, which in time for the vote, last Friday on the 27th of October. And um, as its deputy permanent representative made it quite clear, New Zealand wasn't happy with the... We didn't necessarily think the resolution was perfect. It's just we felt the alternative of abstaining or opposing it was even less value, given the desperate situation at the moment. Yeah. Just just going for a minute then, Robert, to the question of um, not resolving some of the longer-term situations behind here. I was really struck reading a remarkable piece by Simon Sebag Montefiore, who, while very strongly you know, supporting Israel's right to exist and so on, and having his own huge personal family history, historic family history to the Zionist movement and to, and to Israel, was very much of the view or expressed the very strong view that there has to be out of this, you know, going back to another two-state conversation or two-state two, two type solution. And then you've got Tony Blinken, Anthony Blinken, the the Secretary of State going to Israel again today, clearly mm. it would seem, or it would seem that um, the Americans are starting more nervous even than they perhaps were, that Netanyahu's got no interest in that, and it's all for him about a zero-sum game of destroying Hamas. Yeah, but you see the, the big problem, and, the, and it's incumbent on the United States to raise this issue, and I hope Mr. Blinken does, because I think Amer- America misjudged the situation initially because they gave unqualified support to Israel's right to defend itself. But as international lawyers point out, the right to self-defense is not unlimited. And it's got to be conducted in humanitarian laws, which means that civilians that were not involved in the Hamas attack on Israel should mm-hmm. be protected. And uh, any uh, def- you know, uh, targeting of those responsible, uh, I think few people beli- uh, would quibble with the idea that those responsible for that appalling attack on Israel should be targeted. 
but it's quite clear that a lot of people mm. are dying that had nothing to do with the attack. And that's what makes many of us very uncomfortable. And it's important for Mr. Blinken. I, I think America perhaps underestimated the scope of the Israeli operation when they supported it initially. I don't know. Um, I, I'm surprised when I say that myself, I'm surprised at myself saying that because the Americans have dealt with Mr. Netanyahu for many years. And uh, they may have felt that by giving him a relatively blank check at the beginning, they may have some leverage over him subsequently. Well, certainly uh, by going to see him, you know, but Biden taking that, I mean, I wrote about this and you, I think you thought I was being a bit Pollyannish about this, that, mm. and it was described in, uh, by Franklin Foer in the, um, in the Atlantic as being the hug BB strategy. And, and of course, you know, BB is, is himself a bit of a porcupine and, um, you know, you can get a bit, you can get a bit hurt cuddling porcupines. Let alone making love with them, which apparently is um, that's going to be it was going to be a dad joke, but I'm not doing any dad jokes. Josie, it's so good to see you. Josie is the columnist from the Post Hi, and an international aid expert. We were just talking with Robert, Prof, mm. Prof Robert, about Gaza and New Zealand's role in this. Robert wrote that piece that I think, I think you've seen in the ODT. Brilliant. Um, yeah, it's interesting, that we, we, and you know the Labour Party very well, and you probably also know these interregnum time periods. Very interesting that the New Zealand permanent representative voted the way she did for in, in New Zealand with the Jordanian vote that was ultimately struck down. What what do you think goes on in that sort of situation? Yeah, and and um, I was just listening to your conversation, and it's it's um it it's so interesting because I think the, the as you said, Peter, the the problem is that. When you call for a ceasefire, unless and, and Jewish people across the world are feeling this, I think, but unless you're also being clear that the ceasefire has to be yes. Hamas too, and 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 it has to involve Egypt, you know, Jordan, the, the, the countries surrounding Palestine and Israel need to get involved in this too, and and be part of a deal that is guaranteeing a ceasefire for Israel as well, because it's not just. You know, it, it, it's not just, and you're absolutely right, Robert. I mean, we have to keep our eye on what's the long game here. And both Hamas and Netanyahu's mm, government mm. do not want a two-state solution. So, well, they've certainly. No I mean, he's he's staked the last twenty years of his political yeah. career on containment, hasn't he? But I think Hamas. I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Josie. But I think Hamas have technically changed their position. Whether it's a substantive yeah. change, I don't know. But in 2017, they said they now accept it as two-state solution based on the 1967 boundaries at the time, at the end of the Six-Day War, which uh, Israel, of course, won quite handsomely. So uh, they do say they now have changed their position. Mm. So that that's interesting. It's only something I, I learned in the last few days because I, I was under the impression, like many people, that going by their commentary and their general stance, that they just oppose the very existence of Israel, but they insist their political arm says they don't. So, Robert, their constitution, though, such as it yep. is, I mean, their manifesto is very clear that it's from the river to the sea. They do not support the state of Israel. So even if they are now saying, oh, yes, we do, it, it's still this. I mean, I think that I keep thinking about, you know, I grew up in the 80s in England, born in New Zealand, grew up over there. And, and, and I think mm. of the IRA and Sinn Féin. And I remember, you know, as a student hosting a debate with, with Sinn Féin and, and the unionists yes. because it was banned at the time. The difference there is that, um, you know, the IRA were a terrorist organization trying to get Britain out of Ireland out of, mm. and, and out of Northern Ireland. Hamas has, has never believed that the state of Israel should exist and legitimate. So I think that's the problem with the ceasefire call rather than the humanitarian pause call is that what people hear is that we're going to somehow co-opt Hamas and, to, and pretend that you can negotiate with them. I agree. But I think one of the things that boosts Hamas, ironically, is intense military pressure. Yes. Um, I think what it, the reason I think it's so important that New Zealand makes its voice heard about the way ahead is because if most Palestinians had a pathway to a clear viable state, I think that would reduce Hamas's Absolutely. leverage with it amongst yeah. the Palestinians. And so, uh, you know, many Israelis are saying this. There's Huge. a lot of criticism yeah. of Netanyahu at the moment. I was yes. listening to Gideon Levy, who writes for Haratz, and he was saying that, in a sense, you shouldn't underestimate Mr. Netanyahu's self-interest in prolonging this conflict. Absolutely. You know, this is, that's exactly the point I was trying to make in my spin-off thing this week, that he's, 
he is you know he's he is the classic survivor you know you really have to have to get a steak and and uh, quite a lot of garlic to to deal with them and it, and you know no one's managed no one's managed to do with that politically and i'm not suggesting the assassination of the israeli prime minister i think he's in trouble if which and which is there's nothing there's no silver lining in this situation it is no. all just hideously awful um but i think netanyahu i think he he's politically i think he's done absolutely but so, but that, but he he won't be done necessarily while he's still the war prime minister. But a lot of people are being killed in the meantime, and yes. a lot of innocent people, and uh, and children. You know, this tragedy, and it is a tra- utter tragedy, and it's a terrible indictment of where we are in the twenty first century. Because once again, the UN yeah. Security Council has been shown to be totally dysfunctional, yeah. and not fit for purpose. And you know, it's just. It, the veto has become an agent of international mm. destabilization. Many countries like New Zealand mm. under Peter Fraser have reluctantly accepted the veto in the post-45 period because they believed, although it didn't approve of it, that it was good to have the great powers inside the UN so that they could help bring about solutions to yeah. security problems. And that was quite reasonable at the time, but it was based on the assumption that the UN, uh, the Security Council was co- capable of self-interested international cooperation. The problem is that's unraveled in the 21st century where we have, you know, countries like Russia, the United States, China, quite happy to cast the veto for very partisan, Mm. self-interested reasons and frustrating international solutions. And and the rest of the the trouble is the rest of the world is paying the price for five countries having this privilege. And it's very frustrating. There is, because I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things post-Ukraine and and now with, with this tragedy unfolding in the Middle East, I think there'll be a, a mandate, surely, for revisiting the veto again. And it can be done, can it not, through the General Assembly. Mm. So I know we can't do it through Security Council because the veto mm. will veto the veto. But through the General Assembly, there is a mechanism, if there was a majority of the General Assembly, to revisit that veto. And either... Um, create more permanent members so that, that so that you don't have a couple of members able to veto, or um, uh, you know th- there are many ways in which the veto could be reformed um, if yeah. you can get that majority at the general assembly. Isn't isn't that right, Robert? Yes, I think that is right, Josie. But although I fear that adding to more permanent members with the veto may actually increase the deadlock. <laughs> yes, um, but I take your point. I, I actually. It, there may be some silver lining to this situation, and that is if the General Assembly actually says what it believes, that they should the five yeah. members should not have the veto and frustrate things. And they, I've always been struck by the fact that there's tremendous support for ab- abolishing the veto, but also uh, yeah. because the three permanent members, China, the US and Russia, are so powerful, many of them are very reluctant to say that publicly. That's right. But can we just move from one 75-year-old intractable problem with, with a, a dreamy attitude to changing the uh, the Security Council to, in fact, changing the balance towards using this crisis, using this tragedy, as you put it, Josie, in, in, in Gaza, mm. towards generating a, a positive outcome of a renewed Palestinian organization that can actually um, represent Palestinians well? There's a, I, I was really struck mm. today, and, and it you know, in the, in the sense, I could have written it myself based on the Pollyanna stuff I've written in the last couple of weeks that that Robert's taken me to task for. But the Economist this week in its editorial, yeah, I know so, I'm extremely so sensitive. sensitive. It's, it's, so I know sensitive, it's been t- it points off my doctorate. <laughs> but um, did I mention my doctorate again, Robert? But the um, the you, uh, did. you yeah. did, yeah, thanks. It's all in hand, Peter. <laughs> yeah, I think you passed it already. The, you know, the Economist is arguing that that. Netanyahu must have a free hand right now to destroy and decapitate Hamas, but that it must immediately then stop and he step down and there be rapid talks on a on a on a, on establishing an alternative Palestinian authority and and starting meaningful talks towards a two party solution. I, before Robert shuts yep. that down, because I can see you, I, I know what you're going to say, Robert, and you'll be far more informed than I. But I, th- I think one of the things that's led to this situation is, of course, that, that Netanyahu has supported and quite happily uh, in, in many ways, which is so cynical, 
Hamas as against yes. the PLO or PA mm. uh, because uh, both Hamas and Netanyahu don't want a, or, or, or certainly to date haven't wanted a two-state solution. So one of the things, one of the ways in which Israel has fallen down is not to support, you know, a, a Palestinian authority that can, can at least deliver for its people. And now they have to do that. And it has the pressure. That's what I mean about if you're going to do a, if, if we're going to call for a ceasefire, the part of it has to be uh, more resourcing and support for, for the PA, for the PLO, and support from Arab partner countries around Palestine and Israel to decapitate Hamas. I mean, there can be no negotiation with Hamas. Which there was some uh, possibility of in that idea of Saudi normalization, because you know, although although historically Riyadh doesn't really care about the uh, about the Palestinians, they did you know open up open uh, appoint an ambassador to uh, open an embassy and um, to or uh, appoint an ambassador to the Palestinian Authority, and they, you know it was clear that they were not going to accept the terms of normalization without a clear pathway to a to a, a destination for the Palestinian people. I actually agree with the the need to keep the two state solution on the political agenda. I think it's critical. And, and, and Joseph is absolutely right to say Mr. Netanyahu and Hamas have not been particularly thrilled with that prospect. But there is some real practical problems. And the practical problems is that mm. the pace of settlements. Well, Successive mm-hmm. US administrations, apart from the Trump administration, but if you look at every other administration going back to Clinton, have constantly publicly rebuked Israel for illegal settlements which they say is illegal under international law, which almost certainly is, according to most international lawyers. Yes. Um, and yet Israel, and you, you mentioned this point earlier, Peter, Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders have been quite happy to take American support, but actually not always take their advice or even listen to them. And they've gone ahead with settlement. Now there's close yes. to 600,000 Israeli settlers in the West Bank. And they, what do you where's do? the viable state going to be? How is that going to be created? What do you do now? If you remember, after Oslo, there was talk about a kind of motorway network between between the West Bank and Gaza, you know, with flyovers and Christ knows what. But there's, you know, you couldn't even do that now because it's such a checkerboard. Oh, the Greens would uh, campaign against that. You can't, you can't have a flyover. Yeah, but just there's a just let's go back for one because I think also there's an aspect, and we I don't want to make this into a media story, but and and I also do not. Well, I seldom believe those stories when people say why oh why isn't the mainstream media reporting it because they almost always are. But the um, you know the expulsions of Palestinians and Bedouin from um, territory in the in the occupied territories in the West Bank has gone on quite dramatically mm. this week, along with some very sectar- nasty sectarian uh, a- attacks against against Palestinians by you know extreme settlers, yeah. which of course, just to be fair, does not condone any of the other things that have been going on with uh, anti-Semitic attacks on Jews around the world. But, you know, the the, beha- the sort of the possibilities of the West Bank catching fire, it's amazing, really, that it hasn't much more so far. No, but you're quite right. I think it's interesting that President Macron this week protested to Netanyahu about the treatment of Palestinian yep. farmers. I mean, we're talking at a time when more than 100 Palestinians have been killed. Some have been yes. killed in peaceful protests. Yeah. They haven't got arms, but they protested about being evicted from their houses by armed settlers who are accompanied by the Israeli army. And um, viewed from Palestinian eyes, the Israelis, particularly under Mr. Netanyahu, seem to be trying to close off the option of any Palestinian state in the future. That's the way they're reading it. And, uh, you know, I remember when uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, was relinquished by Israel in 2005. There was a big storm in Israeli politics at the time because something like 8,000 Israeli yes. settlers had to return to Israel, which caused a, a bit of a storm. Just imagine. 600,000, yeah. And of course, remember, it was Ariel Sharon who managed to do that. Who was pretty pretty brutal. I mean, this is this is the, one of the big barriers to getting to, to, to some future solution, isn't it? What do you do about the settlers? And, and of course, it's illegal. International law ha- lawyers have you know, overwhelmingly agreed that it's illegal, as is the wall. Um, but then what is it that you do about the people who've settled there and built houses? And uh, so part of a deal surely has to be the cost of relocating 
uh, the, the, the settlers. Uh, absolutely. And they also believe they have a God-given right to be there. You know, that God has said that yeah. that's, that's where yes. they need to be. And so there's a wonderful, um, it, it's, it, it's the Israeli writer um, uh, Amos Oz, a novel. He's 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 passed away now. He was a peace activist and a lefty. And he he, you know, it, it's this idea that we're trying to see this as a football match mm. of of good guys, bad guys, right, wrong, um, my team, your team. And it, and he he came up with this lovely quote, which is is just you know so pertinent now. Yeah, inf- it's infinitely more tragic than right versus wrong. It's a clash yeah. of right versus right. Two peoples mm. with deep wounds, howling with grief, fated to share the same small piece of land. Mm. And, and so that has to be where you start from. Mm. Yeah, well, when, when, if we're talking about authors to, to recommend, apart from Amos Oz, um, Josie, I, mm. I recommend to people um, Raja uh, Shahadi, who wrote the wonderful book Palestinian Walks, which is a, he's a, a Palestinian doctor and peace activist who has written the most two wonderful books about what it means to walk as he did as a child from his, you know, from his. Uh, you know, and through his ancient territories and farms, and how it's all just been divided up and sliced up. It's a very moving, moving piece. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the the question of um, the contract that is? I, I interviewed uh, Anthony Lowenstein, who's a very interesting Australian journalist, Jewish author, mm-hmm. who gets into a lot yep. of stick with with other Jews about his concern about about the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians. I mean. His thesis is that Israel has built that extraordinary defensive state, containment state, that has been broken, shown to be a sham. But in doing so, it's also broken the Israeli government's contract with its own people, which is to protect them. Where does where does this all leave them? Totally. It, 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 surely it means the end of, mm. of, of Netanyahu. And so, and you just look at the numbers of people, the pictures of you know, reservists, soldiers, Israeli defense force, you know, um, citizens um, protesting on the streets of, of Israel mm. before this happened, before October the 7th, and that hasn't gone away. In fact, that's now, um, you know, that feeling of, of, of being led down this bloody, insecure, unjust <laughs> path. Yes, yeah, believing that the walls were impregnable and that you had the problem contained and it could be contained when, as you say, it's two rights facing but, each other. Yes. So- but, but may I ask... Um, Josie, I want you to stay on, and, and Robert, please, to stay on. We'll sort of flip to, to some New Zealand questions in a minute. But, yes, Robert, the, it was very interesting today. The, the the head of the Ukrainian army says we're at a stalemate. Um, Putin is obviously, in, in a sense, enjoying what's going on here as a distraction from Ukraine. Netanyahu declined the, the offer of the visit from Zelensky. Where does our frequent focus on Ukraine sit with all of this? Well, I think uh, it's there's some worrying developments because we've got a new Republican mm. speaker in the United States in the Congress, um, Michael Johnson, and he's made he's indicated in the past that he was unsympathetic to funding and supporting Ukrainian resistance to Putin's invasion, and uh, he's slightly down backpedaled on that. Now he's got the job. And I noticed that Mr. Biden in the last 24 hours is going ahead with a $425 million package for the Ukrainians. But I think there's a big question mark now. And this probably this question mark will probably become even more pronounced mm. as we move into mm. 2024 with Absolutely. the US election looming, particularly if the Republicans win, about America's staying power in supporting mm. Ukraine. And the question is, will the Europeans and others step up? And um, uh, solution, uh, general solution is uh, article which was reproduced in the Economist. Very interesting, and he admitted that the counteroffensive, after five months, had not made the progress they hoped. Although he did indicate uh, they had made quite significant progress yeah. in the Crimea and the Black Sea. He said they have, you know, amongst other things, they haven't got a navy, and they basically. Uh, done quite a lot of damage to the Russian position there in the Black Sea, but mm. he was quite, he was quite candid and said that a battle of attrition, where they're making only you know they've only advanced about seventeen kilometres on uh, in many parts of the front, um, yes. is playing into Russia's hands. And he he made an interesting. Mm. He called for several things. He said, first of all, we've got to do to turn this round. We've got to have control of the skies. Um, that comes in two ways. Uh, the F-16s are clearly being flagged. They're on their way, but again, it's been quite slow. I think training started this week in Romania. and um, d- 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 Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's one thing. But the second thing, which was interesting, was they he he also hinted that they need much more. He didn't name the systems, but he said they need much more uh, effective uh, defense uh, anti-missile systems, which are Patriot batteries, I think he's referring to. Uh, and he also called, and this was probably the major point he was making, for in greater innovation, which again, I think is decoded means yeah. more drones. And, and more early warning. Uh, yeah. The Russians, uh, the Ukrainians have had spectacular success with $600 drones. They've been knocking out, amongst other Ooh. things, $4 million yes. T-90 tanks, which must be very galling for the Kremlin to see the state-of-the-art tank knocked out by a $600 drone. Yeah, well, I, I imagine it was certainly galling for the for the Israelis to see um, one of their tanks dro- no, taken out by a, by a Hamas drone. Could we move just back, because we're coming close to the top of the hour, as we say, in, this, in, sure. in, the, in us professional broadcasters. But... Um, uh, Josie, we went b- really? b- before you came in, Robert, uh, when Bernard was on at the top of the hour, top of the other hour, we were talking about mm. the New Zealand uh, elections, the information today about where the special votes has gone. Uh, National will probably get Waikato, um, but it looks as though Mr. Kingy um, is, is in fact going to be the kingmaker again. Um, what, how are you seeing this play out there? And particularly as foreign affairs would seem to be one of the places yeah. where he may get deposited. Well, before I get to foreign affairs, I think the biggest takeout from the specials, I think, is that all the small parties have something huge to celebrate. Mm. And um, someone said to me, actually, uh, it was on on election night, they said um, everybody won but Labour on election night. And I think that's true. And now these small parties, so you've got the Greens have got the biggest result ever with the most MPs ever in Parliament. ACT have won two electorates rather than just one. Um, uh, Te Pāti Māori, extraordinary, have, have uh, you know, six out of seven of the Māori seats that they've taken off. And changes the balance of a whole of parliament as a result. Yes. So each of the small parties has something big to celebrate. Um, and I think, you know, nationals in government and it, it, they're going ha- to have to work with New Zealand First and Winston Peters, but they're still in government. And so, you know, you look at it and you go, well, the, the one mm. loser here is Labour yet again and just... There's nothing. There's no good news for Labour in this. No, it's fact, another rebuilding phase, isn't it? It's another rebuilding phase, but also just Nashville would have rather lost some seats because they've only got a few people on the list, and they were looking to get uh, James Christmas in because mm. they wanted him to be Attorney General and 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 do treaty stuff. Um, whereas um, Labour, it's the other way around that they've they've lost so many electorates that they've got a whole bunch of people on the mm. list that they might not want to wanted to have protected actually so what they've got is everybody on the list down to you know your, your mother and your uncle is now in, in that labor caucus in other words everybody who just lost them the election is still there so it's hard to see where that renewal comes from if, if it was the all blacks team you know the all blacks that are going to lose nine nine all blacks um after this world cup but they're still probably going to mm. win every game next year because they've got so many good players not the case but, of Labour. And what about this question of of, of foreign affairs? I mean, it, it, uh, we've we've discussed before. I mean, we know Winston loved that job. Like I think I've said before, the, the, the history of the foreign foreign service suggests that the people there respect him. Is that the place to park him? Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, you know, I think we maybe even mentioned, might have talked about this, but you know, this week he came out and said it's really important that New Zealand's at the Pacific Island Forum. We need to be seen there. Um, this this mm-hmm. is our most important near relationship, this in Australia. And and he's right, you know, and, as well as APEC. And so you go, right, there's the next foreign affairs minister in waiting. So I think, yeah, he doesn't want speaker. Of course he doesn't. I mean, you know, there's only two New Zealand First MPs, him and Shane Jones. They they need to do stuff. Jerry Brownlee's going to PIP, by the way, but, to which what? is interesting. What's PIP? To the Pacific, Pacific Island Forum. Oh, is he? Um, yeah. So, so They'll Jerry have to get a very Brownlee's large lava lava forum. Yep. And Robert, what are you, what are you thinking about about foreign, foreign Minister of Foreign Affairs? Uh, yeah, I was just, I mean, I agree with what Josie says. I mean, I, we could obviously see a situation where Mr. Peters reclaims his uh, foreign ministry position, foreign minister position, I should say. But I, I'm wondering whether Chris Luxon actually... Uh, reading between the lines, I mean, Mr. Mm. Luxon's very careful in his public pronouncements, um, and he's been very mm. careful, I think, to, how should I put it, indulge Winston quite a bit. Um, but I, I'm wondering whether he actually believes, given the current situation, he wants someone closer mm-hmm. to National's view on international affairs. 
and I'm just wondering whether Luxon would, wouldn't want to be embarrassed. I'm not saying he mm. would embarrass the country. I'm just saying from Luxon's point of view, he may feel that Mr. He wants, he, he, he's probably, he did say he wanted to see New Zealand much more active on the global stage, both commercially and diplomatically. And I'm not yeah. sure Mr. Mm. Luxon mm. sees Mr. Peters in that role. He doesn't want to see a sort of chair of the board foreign minister. No, and Jerry Brownlee's been saying some really measured and interesting things through the campaign. I mean, I did a debate with him, a panel thing, where he was his his position on AUKUS was very measured. It's like, mm. no, we're not going to step into pillar two, and we want to know what it is. We're not. Yeah. We're not just going to automatically side with um with with the Americans. A little bit more nuanced on China, whereas. Yeah, you're right. I think there is a bit of difference there from a New Zealand First perspective of being perhaps mm -hmm. a little more accommodating, certainly in the past, of Russia, <laughs> maybe less accommodating of China. Um, yeah, that, that's what I, if I was Mr. Luxon, I might worry that the, he may find himself mm -hmm. at loggerheads with his own foreign minister. That's a big challenge for Mr. Luxon because, you know, everybody's taught, you'll know this much better than I do, Josie, the whole question of managing this coalition. And yeah. he will, I think he'll pick a foreign minister hopefully, uh, that is not just not just good at the job, but also doesn't disrupt, from Mr Luxon's point of view, keeping this coalition together. But the thing is, I've, I've been with Winston Peters overseas, and he, and I, you know, you guys have seen this too, he's very professional, he's very, he reads a room, he respects everyone mm -hmm. from a small, the smallest country in the Pacific to um, the biggest country, he, he he will he navigates his way through that stuff quite well. And he look, he's on his perhaps yep. his last three years. Who knows? He's going mm. to be focused on a legacy of statesmanship and so on. I think, I think. Look, I think Luxon's got two good choices there: Jerry Brownlee or Winston yeah. Peters. So, Josie, what what else are, are you picking? This guy James Christmas as the next Attorney General? Well, no, because I think I think he's. That's what I mean. I think he's not in. Yeah, because if they. Because they they've done too well. <laughs> <laughs> so he'll 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 be the head of the royal commission into into um to Turity. That's right. Maybe what will happen with Labour because they've got too many people on the list now. Um, there'll be there'll be yep. so there'll be some resignations. I suspect. I think Grant will go. Grant Robertson will go. Um, uh, depending on whether there's a leadership stoush um uh maybe david parker will decide he's he's done his dash and you know people like uh, people who can't win their seats who are on the list you know are, are probably counting yeah. probably going to have to count their days and and will have the pressure will come on them to resign is there any are there any quirky ones that you that you, that you I mean what might david i mean again we try but and i discussed this today and we said we're still going to do it from a sort of solutions journalism point of view not a resource resource point of view but where, where might david um seymour end up do you think Huh. Don't, yeah. So, so he'll he'll want something around regulation, planning, finance. You know. Uh, um, so he's not going to get finance, mm -hmm. obviously, because that's Nicola Willis. But he'll want something. He'll want an associate portfolio there, I think, and and maybe something around um, economic development. You know, this is it's got to be something with a portfolio and something around planning and regulation and and blowing up the public sector. So if there's a if there's a minister of blowing up the public sector that'll be David Seymour. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Good. So look let me thank you so much both of you Robert Patman and Josie Pagani for being thank on. You. I'm just going to quickly do a tiny skateboarding dog knowing that our producer Simon will trim this for the one that goes out tomorrow and I'd like to use some incredibly rude swear words which were used this week by Dominic Cummings, um, mostly in his in his evidence to the British COVID <laughs> inquiry. And Dominic was the supposed Svengali, um, described by David David Cameron as a, as a psychopath, probably quite rightly. And uh, I'm not actually, Bernard asked me not to use the word beginning with C and ending in T that, that he used quite regularly. And then Cummings was asked whether he was being misogynistic by having talked about a woman using those terms, and he said, "No, no, 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 no. I was, I, I, I was far worse to men than I was to was to women, which is an excellent way of getting out of the misogynistic uh, realm." But I, I, I love the way the Guardian um, correspondent or commentator Marina Hyde described the um, cabinet handling yeah. of uh, yeah, COVID as being like putting real housewives in charge of the Manhattan Project. Yeah, so I think whatever we That's whatever we good. think of the way New Zealand handled it, at least it wasn't Boris. And I I felt we could see all this at the time, and I thoroughly encourage everybody to watch Kenneth Branagh's um, portrayal of Boris in a thing called This England, 
which is harrowing because it's it's a little too close to the bone, as it were. Can I just add that one thing to that? Marina Hyde's sure, great line so. of uh, where she described Liz Truss's very brief premiership as a drive-by premiership, which was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. No, she's fabulous, and, and she also she also described Dominic uh, Cummings as. Um, uh, in, in terms of the Manhattan Project, as Robert Stroppenheimer. Stroppenheimer, that's right. All right. Well, we've all been very stroppy today, and thank you so much, everybody. Um, I'm, I know you'll all miss Bernard, but hopefully he'll be back. Thank and, you. And, and Perky. Bernard who? And to David Morrig's question, I think I think um, Bernard has brought climate change to Waiheke, and it's and it's not looking yeah. good. Bernard, I know that Bernard, Mrs. Bernard, had to swim to the uh, to the to the to the New World the other day. So you know. Mrs. It's not easy. See you, and thank you so much for everybody. Thank you guys. To, for following. And to Simon Bye. for producing. Thank Thanks you. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Yeah, have a nice weekend. Bye.